What happens when a multi-trillion dollar industry meets a global health crisis that grinds it to a halt? And when things start returning to quote-unquote normal, assuming that they do, what does that industry look like next? Welcome to If Win, a Jacobs podcast series. I'm your host, Paul Teese, and in this episode, we look at the impact of COVID-19 on the aviation and public transportation industries, featuring insights from Kevin Slack, Jacobs Global Vice President for Transportation, and Andrew Gibson, Jacobs Global Solutions Director for Aviation. Kevin Slack brings more than three decades of transportation experience, ranging from project development and planning to design, design build, and program management. He began his career as a transportation engineer and gained extensive experience conducting highway safety research for the Federal Highway Administration and the National Cooperative Highway Safety Research Program, including serving as the co-principal investigator for the development of guidance for implementation of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials' Strategic Highway Safety Plan. Andrew Gibson has 30 years of experience in the design, construction, and planning of airport infrastructure both as a client and a consultant, undertaking projects in the UK, Europe, India, Latin America, and Africa. During his 17-year career with BAA, the former UK-British Airports Authority, Andrew served in a range of planning and engineering roles, including aerodome safeguarding, airfield maintenance, and terminal engineering. He was involved in the design and planning of facilities at airports across the BAA group, including Heathrow Terminal 5. All right, Kevin and Andrew, thank you so much for joining me this morning to talk about aviation and transportation. Uh, just to kind of get us started, Andrew, my first question is for you. Can you share with us a few of the challenges the aviation market is facing around the globe right now with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? And what are some of the universals that the aviation industry is trying to solve for? Thanks, Paul. I, I suppose the, the first and most obvious issue that we, we need to flag up is the dramatic downturn in traffic and revenue that aviation is experiencing almost across the globe with perhaps a 95% reduction in traffic and therefore revenue. So the the single biggest and most immediate challenge to airports is generally one of business continuity, uh, making sure that they maintain a a cash positive um, and keep themselves in business. And a lot of airports have been busy closing down facilities temporarily and furloughing staff so that they can maintain uh, a steady state in the business. Beyond that, I think the the single biggest challenge, which is a a collective one, is just the unparalleled uncertainty of the situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, Normally, in most industries, you are able to predict what you may be doing next on the basis of precedent. But for example, in demand forecasting at the moment, uh, there's a a lot of work looking at what the traffic demand is likely to be in the future. But there is no real precedent when we look at 9-11, SARS, or the economic downturn. There has never been anything quite like COVID, so it's very difficult and challenging for airports to predict what demand is likely to be. And then to compound that, it's also very, very challenging for them to understand what the nature of any demand is like to be, because we've never had a situation before where we've seen multiple airlines either going into insolvency or requiring government bailouts. So it's difficult for the airports to predict which airlines will be in business uh, when the upturn comes, which aircraft they will be flying and on which routes. So the actual flight schedule that airports need to plan for uh, may not be a, 
relatively straightforward prediction from the flight schedule that they had been flying before the downturn happened. So that compounds the uncertainty along. Next, with the, the lack of uh, any regulation at the moment, we may talk about this a bit more in detail later, but um, at the moment, the industry generally is, is struggling, and I don't think it's unique to aviation to understand how any form of transportation deals with the impact of COVID and what it might mean for checks and social distancing. So until we get a, a consistent level of regulation, that's going to make life very difficult for the airports and the airlines to predict what they need to do next. And then I suppose finally, we don't really know how the, the, the most important people in this in many ways, the passengers, are going to respond. There is no doubt that you know, passenger confidence will be knocked just as much as it will have been going to sports, sports or any entertainment, uh, the, the theatre or the cinema. Now, if you're going to go to an airport now, what are passengers expecting in terms of you know, social distancing, cleanliness, changed, changed processes to give them the confidence to go back into a public space and to fly on an aircraft potentially to a, a foreign country? So we need to make sure that we are able to respond to these concerns and build their confidence to, so that we've actually got a market that the airports can service and we need to make sure the staff are safely protected as well on their return to work so we've got a number of clients at the moment who are you know, just struggling with the basic concept of how do they return both their own staff and airline and handling agent staff back into the workplace environment with the appropriate safeguards in place which is you know, the same that any industry would struggle with so at the moment, we're working with a number of these clients to develop a methodical approach to each of these to help them map the journey from closing down facilities, which has been a necessity, into reopening and right-sizing them and bringing the airport back to life. Yeah, I was, uh, I was looking at uh, some stats just to give our listeners a little bit of scope on just what a 95% or greater downturn in activity means According to the International Civil Aviation Organization, the air, air transport industry accounts for over 65 million jobs globally and has a global economic impact of 2.7 trillion GDP with uh, something like 12 million passengers flown daily. So just a huge ramification. And so Kevin, kind of pivoting a little bit to give it some broader context, and Andrew alluded to this a little bit, but Looking more broadly, what are some of the more unique geographic challenges and responses you're seeing across the entire transportation industry of which aviation would be a part? Thanks, Paul. I think, uh, you know, Andrew outlined a number of them, and they're, they're really very similar for public transport agencies, not just aviation industries. And I think what, what we're seeing is less geographically, but the differences are more related to where certain parts of the globe are on the continuum of dealing with the pandemic. So for example, the challenges in China and Asia where we're seeing things come back to life and the economies reopen, we're seeing challenges with returning to service or returning to the demand and the public returning to the use of public transport and continuing to safeguard the public as well as transportation workers. If you look at where we are maybe more in the U.S. and in Europe, where we're still dealing with economic shutdown and demand is low. Um, as Andrew said, m most of our agencies are dealing with how to maintain service with dramatic reductions in revenue. 
and, and also protecting workers and providing that service for essential workers, for, for healthcare workers, first responders, and so on and so forth. Um, I think maybe down the road, and Andrew alluded to this too, we'll see some international challenges. Um, when you look at traveling globally across borders, I think when you look at regional travel, say for example, in the US or in the UK and Europe, by other modes of transportation, there's some level of consistency provided by governing agencies, but I think that becomes more complicated as you look at global transportation, right? To ensure that we have the same safeguards and performances in place to safeguard the traveling public and workers uh, in different parts of the globe and around the globe. So I think that's a challenge that we'll see emerging. And then we've seen some, in the ports business, for example, we've seen some logistics challenges around, and again, this ties more back to the timing of the spread of the pandemic and early on China was, was shut down. So we saw supply issues where we weren't able to get goods out of China and transport them to where the demand was. Well, now that situation is starting to flip where we're seeing supply start up and China restart and, and parts of the world that are suppliers, but the demand is reduced. So that's certainly affected, you know, the way we move uh, freight around the world through our ports business. So, so I think it's less geographic and it's more time related in terms of, of, of where we are on the continuum of, of fighting the pandemic. And I get that, you know, obviously, cause you're seeing, you're seeing the pandemic kind of radiate out in different pockets. So like for instance, Australia and New Zealand and, and some of the countries in the, in the Asia Pacific, they've effectively, it looks like already gone through their peak cycle and, and are really on, on flattening the curve where here in the U S you know, we're still very much uh, in an active mode kind of t uh, shifting just a little bit. So we've, we've kind of laid out the challenges. Now, I wanted to ask you both a little bit about uh, best practices and some of the activities that, you know, both aviation and other, others in the transportation sector are taking to um, make use of this opportunity, if you want to call it that, to, um, to look for things that they can do to uh, create a post-pandemic transportation sector. So, Andrew, to start with you, the question is, um, you know, around the lull in airline activity, are there any compelling examples of airlines or airports you're seeing that are leveraging this time to do some compelling facility and maintenance upgrades? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly seeing evidence of that, Paul, uh, around the globe. Um, it varies slightly in its extent dependent on you know, the availability of funding at airports. So there is probably a, a slight difference here or separation between airports which are, are privately funded, whether maybe the cash flow has, has dried up, um, and airports where they are you know, publicly or federally funded, where they've got um, greater access to funding and funding of uh, construction works. So, you know, for example, a really, good, a really good one is at Denver at the moment. We're aware that one of the gates, they are undertaking refurbishment of the aircraft parking. Uh, normally, you'd end up doing that at one gate at a time. Now we're able to, with the downturn, undertake it on all 12 gates simultaneously, which means it's done a, a year quicker than it would previously have been done. Huge cost savings. Similarly, Raleigh Durham have just managed to resurface their runway, which had been an ongoing program which has been done in a shortened period of time because rather than just doing it in short nighttime sessions, they're able to keep the runway closed for a far greater period of time with the work in a far more efficient fashion. So this is now when we're seeing similar activities elsewhere in the globe, maybe to a lesser extent, 
where airports are now starting to seriously investigate and take action doing maybe some targeted repairs that they've just simply never had the opportunity to do before, where they have been too timing, too time consuming or too intrusive. You couldn't get them done in a single night or a, a runway or a taxiway came back into operation. Uh, a number of airports are looking at undertaking extensive refurbishments and renovations of passenger concourses, which are notoriously difficult and logistically challenging to refurbish when they're, they're full of passengers. So it becomes very, very, very costly. So they are looking at now trying to do that in a far shorter and intent, more intensive period, which will save a lot of money. Uh, we've seen other clients actually then starting to redesign projects which were just about to hit site, where they are now starting to get some foresight as to potential structural changes in the market as a result of COVID. For example, we've seen the, the widespread grounding and mothballing of A380 aircraft. So I am aware that a number of airport airfield projects are now being redesigned to assume a, a lesser prevalence of, of A380 operations in the future and that will have consequential cost savings. And I suppose then looking forward, there are a number of projects around the world where we have either greenfield airports or, or new terminals or terminal extensions, which are still at the early stages of design. And there are ongoing dialogues now with clients saying, well, we need to, need to think about what the new normal might be. Um, now how would we respond to the current pandemic and safeguard in our designs against any other future unfortunate instance of this nature. So a lot of clients are either taking short-term opportunities to save money, starting to really seriously reinform and reevaluate what they're going to do in the future in terms of their infrastructure provision. Kevin, kind of looking again across the transportation sector, talking with your clients, have you found that there are best practices in some modes of public transportation that other sectors could benefit from, both within transportation and then maybe even outside of transportation? Yeah, uh, we have. And I think, I think it really ties uh, the connection to public transportation and really us gathering together as a society in public places like schools, uh, returning to the workplace, uh, going to shopping malls, or let's say, for example, sporting events, um, the public feeling safe in those types of venues really ties back to public transportation and what we're seeing there. And some of the things that are being developed, you know, in terms of monitoring and, and biometric screening and thermal scanning, um, we're seeing some walkthrough testing stations uh, being implemented at some of the airports that, that Andrew has talked about. I was reading yesterday that Dubai is at their transit uh, stations, their security officers are beginning to test out the use of thermal cameras and glasses that can detect and, and monitor temperatures for up to 200 people in two minutes. We're seeing enhanced disinfection methods being applied across public transportation, particularly in areas like China where they're coming back online and the use of ultraviolet light, for example, that can disinfect a bus or an aircraft in, in minutes, in, in let's say five minutes versus the, the 30 or 40 minutes that it may have taken a crew uh, to go through a, a bus or an aircraft. And we're looking and we're seeing clients consider changes in their air filtration systems um, on aircraft and on trains where people are tightly packed together. And so all of those, those things that are being looked at from a public transportation aspect, I think, then can be applied more broadly and vice versa, right? Those same things are being looked at 
to to uh, apply to sporting events and, and places where we have social gatherings uh, in the future when we reopen. Andrew, given the uncertainty in travel demand, kind of circling back to uh, you know, the first question, you're kind of talking about the uh, conditions that we have now and then where we look for where the aviation goes, aviation industry goes from here. Um, you know, given the uncertainty, uh, what are some strategies for helping aviation clients successfully navigate the reopening and right-sizing of their operations? Uh, good question, Paul. We're, we're looking at, at a, a number of strategies and steps in this process with clients at the moment. And as I think Kevin mentioned earlier, you know, we've, we've got different airports and different clients around the world who are, who are at different stages depending on where they are in the COVID journey. So obviously in Asia, we're seeing airports starting to reopen again. Um, and maybe in Latin America and the, and the US, we've still got airports which are, are reducing their facilities. So we're trying to work with airports at different points in this particular exercise. And I suppose the first thing to say is it's not as simple as it seems just to close down an airport. So if you're ensuring your business continuity by reducing your cost, which may mean that you need to close terminal, a concourse, or even a runway, which as we have seen um, all over the world, that needs to be done in a really carefully considered manner so that when you close it down, you're pre-planning to make it easier to open up again at some point in the future. So that sort of pre-planning, understanding what needs to be done will enable you to actually close it in a really orderly manner, which will make it safe and efficient moving forward. Clients are now starting to talk to us about remobilization. So how do we, how and when do we bring our facilities back into operation? So one of the techniques we're suggesting they apply is there is a commonly known practice in aviation called operational readiness and transition, known as ORAT as an acronym. Uh, which is all about trying to uh, normally it's about how you bring a new facility into operation in terms of testing commissioning staff training etc and a lot of those techniques are very very directly applicable to bringing a mothballed facility back in back into operation whether it will have been closed maybe for three six twelve nine months who knows what it might be but the process and, and the thinking is much the same it needs to extend not just to all the infrastructure around an airport in terms of terminals, runways, taxiways, air traffic control, parking lots, curbsides, railway stations. It's got to also look at, at things like um, the fuel system, which is extremely complex. You know, fuel, if aviation fuel sits in a, a pipework hydrant system, it goes off over time. So there's a lot of preparation done to keep the fuel fresh, but the fuel is ready and capable and safe to be used in aircraft. We've got to work with multiple stakeholders in the whole aviation ecosystem. And you've got to make sure as well that you know, the airlines, the handling agents, security, retail, hire car are all ready to go. Otherwise, there is not a whole airport product ready to serve the passengers. So we've been developing an extensive checklist for clients, which works in two ways. It, it informs them how to close down the facility, but equally you then just turn the Turn the dynamic through 180 degrees and it informs them how to then open up that self-same facility at some point in the future. A lot of clients and airports are really struggling at the moment with scenario planning around um, regulation health control. Kevin's mentioned some of the things that we've heard are going on around at the world. There's a lot of, a lot of exploratory work going, a lot of trials happening, but this is not yet being pieced together into a, a single coherent health uh, intervention or um, health product at an airport 
So we, I'm fortunate in Jacobs, we've got um, healthcare professionals and health system professionals. Um, they're helping us design some credible um, health checks and interventions at airports. And we're then testing them uh, in a generic and in particular airport environments to, to test what that would mean in terms of space, numbers of staff and, and passenger queuing to start to create a series of building blocks our, our airport clients can work with to understand what potential health scenarios might look like for their individual airports. And that will then help them right-size the facilities, which is a phrase you used. I mean, we, we've got airports which are designed at the moment for a certain level of demand and a certain level of type of, of process. As we move forward in the next you know, six to 18 months, as I said earlier, we've got uncertain demand in terms of passenger traffic. And we've, we've got uncertainty in processes as to you know, what passengers will expect of us, you know, look after their health and give them confidence, what will regulators expect from us, what do we need to do for our own staff. So we're modelling a range of scenarios which you know, trial different passenger numbers and different processes to see what it would mean for some of the terminals that we've been working on. And then from that, we will then have to actually start to work with passengers and educate them. Um, aviation and airports are big exciting places but for many they're, they're quite intimidating and confusing um, you know, we've had to educate passengers in the past in, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11 with new security processes and procedures so if we are going to have a raft of new behaviours and procedures at an airport in the future we need to reach out to passengers in advance educate them over what they expect when they arrive at the airport we're going to have to treat them in a sympathetic manner explain to them what's going on there'll have to be a lot of signage wayfinding to explain where to go and how to behave so i think that challenge shouldn't be underestimated and then finally the lot maybe the, the underpinning challenge to all of that is to help airports manage their cash now, they are going to have reduced revenues there'll be less passengers at the airport there will be less ticket revenue there'll be less uh, revenue from retail and um, property but airports still experience a lot of fixed costs around running terminals and runways so you know, clients are talking to us about how do they proactively manage their cash flow both in and out so that they can maintain a stable business during this period of uncertainty. You know, kind of picking up on that, I was reading that the International Air Transport Association has warned that carriers face a near 40% collapse in passenger numbers this year, which is just kind of unheard of, I think, in terms of... Uh, Unparalleled, Paul. Utterly yeah. unparalleled. Yeah. I think, I think the interesting thing as well, Paul, is that that forecast is a, a global forecast. And what we will find is in, in certain regions and certain airports, those numbers will vary depending on the, you know, the demographics and the specifics of the, mm -hmm. uh, the population, um, the routes that are flown from the airport and the airlines that operate there. So, so yeah, the, the challenges are, are really very significant. Yeah, and, and then, uh, you know, kind of piggyback on that a little bit, and not to get down a rabbit hole, but like S&P Global, uh, I was reading they said that transportation fuels account for like 63% of oil demand, and they're, they're forecasting that oil demand is going to be obliterated by as much as four and a half million barrels a day because of COVID. So this, this app obviously has bleed over across all kinds of sectors and, and industries. Kind of picking up on that, I wanted to I wanted to turn to Kevin on the the idea of encouraging passengers across the transportation sector that it's safe to return to travel again. Andrew, you had talked about a, a number of kind of operational facilities types of solutions that airports could start doing now to mitigate some of that, as well as like educational 
outreach efforts. And Kevin, you had mentioned things like thermal scanning and social distancing and, and that sort of thing. But I wanted to just ask you, Kevin, for your thoughts, how does the transportation industry go about encouraging passengers that it's safe to travel again? Yeah, I think, I think it's really a combination of things. Um, from a psychological standpoint, having passengers feel that it's safe to return. You know, today, it's about avoidance, right? The, the, the direction is don't travel, stay physically separated, combined with, with the proper use of PPE, which is all sort of counter to the, to the use of mass transit and public transportation. But I think what we'll see is a combination of things that'll happen over time, including, and probably first and foremost, is, is therapeutics and vaccines to protect us from the current outbreak, but, but more importantly, from the future, right? So future outbreaks. Um, I think, you know, real-time disinfection and some of the things we talked about uh, in the past will help, uh, along with biometric screening and, and, and we're seeing the use of contact tracing, right, which could be, have a big impact on the public's comfort in terms of, of traveling. Now, that has privacy issues associated with it, but there's, uh, there could be some give and take there. We're seeing applications that are being developed um, by CMU that can potentially determine you know, red, yellow, green, the likelihood of, of being infected with COVID or some other sort of communicable disease. So I think a combination of those things are going to what's, are what's going to be required to, to have the public feel safe to get back on a plane or train or a bus. But then I think even more importantly, and what will have a bigger impact on demand and the need for public transportation is the recovery from an economic standpoint, as, as Andrew had mentioned. You know, the economic recovery and reopening the economy is really going to drive the demand uh, from a transportation standpoint. So I think it's really those two things, a, a comfort level and a feeling of safety around health, as well as how quickly uh, the economy recovers is going to drive uh, the demand and future demand and, and the use of public transport or transportation across the board. On that, in terms of safety and then also, um, you know, stimulus and, and things brings to mind, you know, changes in the regulatory environment. And, you know, Andrew, I think that what we're probably seeing with the, um, you know, the current situation is that unprecedented disruption that we haven't seen at least since 9-11, if ever. And so I guess the question would be, how, how do you see the aviation regulatory environment evolving post-COVID-19? I think maybe also it, it relates to the previous question, Paul, as well, that I think passengers, whether they be on any form of transportation, maybe particularly aviation historically, they do respond well to clear, strong regulation. I think you know, seeing the, the regulators and authorities around the globe step in and do something positive and visible plays an awful lot to establishing passenger confidence in the industry and their own personal health and safety. But I think it will, it will be important from that perspective uh, as much as any. I think the current situation is, is, is uncertain. Um, there is no definitive regulation at the moment because I think where we are, as we were all saying, we are finding ourselves in unparalleled and unprecedented times. Previous um, health scares that, um, which have affected aviation there have been things like SARS, which have been relatively confined in the markets and the regions that they've affected, and they've been short-lived. So no one has ever tried to address anything quite like COVID-19 before, 
in aviation environment. So I think there is a general sort of collective sort of sense of direction, but at the moment there is nothing definitive. And I think it's probably also reasonable to say that in many instances and in, in most regions that there's no clear regulator stepping forward at the moment. Most regulation historically within the aviation industry has been about safety and security, immigration and customs. Now, there's a, a very strong history of regulation in those areas, there are very established systems and processes. Um, health regulation at airports, as I say, has been tended to be transitory over short-lived scares. So there isn't the established strength in regulation in this area. So I think that's seeing that it's taking time for the industry to come forward on this and why it's taking governments um, time to react as well. So I think maybe the biggest risk we've got at the moment is, um, is a, a lack of consistent regulation. Aviation is very, very much a global industry. Passengers are flying globally. Airports, operate, airlines, sorry, operate on a global basis. Uh, there, is, there are a lot of global rules, regulations, and practices in aviation. And I think it's going to become essential to the future health, well-being, prosperity of the industry that we get consistent regulation across the globe. So I know, I know a number of parties, you know, airports, consultants, airlines, um, industry bodies are working very closely with you know, the governments and the regulators um, to try and encourage some sort of consistent regulation. Because if we have different parts of the world requiring different regulations, it's going to be very difficult for airlines and airports you know, to implement that and, and in a consistent manner. And it's become increasingly confusing for passengers, particularly when you take into account that air travel is by its nature, reciprocal in nature. You know, particularly, you know, for every departing passenger, at some point later that day or the next day, you become an arriving passenger. And if you're within one country, that's quite straightforward on a domestic flight because it would be the same regulation and checks that you would, you would probably expect to um, undertake on departure and arrival. But the challenge and the risk will be in international travel if different governments and regions are expecting a different level of scrutiny, regulation, or testing passengers. So passengers will not get a, a consistent experience or airlines will have an inconsistent process to administer depending where you're traveling around the globe. So that is perhaps the single biggest challenge to us all. And quite frankly, all parts of the aviation travel chain are going to have to collaborate if we're going to get a coherent response. Now, the, for an end-to-end -end passenger journey to work in the future, we are going to need the regulators, the airports, the airlines, the handling agents, and, and governments around the world to collaborate, otherwise it's going to become increasingly fragmented. And I know that only today, Airport Council International, and the International Air Travel Association, who represent the airports and the airlines respectively, and they put, put out a joint approach to the restarting of the industry. So that's a really good example of where airports and airlines are already collaborating very positively. And it, no, it's absolutely essential that we need we do so in the future. So we just get a proportionate, consistent regulation across the entire industry. So Kevin, um, the last question for today, and kind of give you an opportunity here to kind of sum up everything we've been talking about and kind of a macro look at uh, what the disruption has meant and kind of where we go from here. But the question is, how do you see the public transportation sector transforming once we get past the current pandemic period? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think the challenge that we have right now, and Andrew alluded to this early on, is, is I talk to transport planners who work across all of the modes of transportation. It, it holds true that almost every variable that we consider when we you know, develop, plan, design, construct, and operate transportation facilities has sort of been turned upside down or, or is in question right now from urbanization trends, land use trends, uh, demand requirements, commuting habits, you know, as, as we return to work, uh, will the same number of folks return to work who, uh, after the pandemic, not likely given all the learning that has happened through this experience. And even some of the things that are, that are very consistent, like capacity, for example, those variables have been turned upside down literally overnight. You know, we, we knew what capacity of a 200-seat uh, airplane was, right, Andrew? That changed overnight, and now that's been cut in half, To uh, So even, even the relative solid knowns are, are unknown at this time. So, you know, how that's going to affect us long term is still a bit fuzzy. If you, if you look at the highway bridge market, you know, as economies are reopening around the world and the use of individual personal vehicles is increased because we still don't have some of those measures that we talked about in place to have public feeling safe about using uh, public transportation again. So on one hand, you could see an, uh, a significant increase in the use of automobiles and highway traffic. And at the same time, as we look at coming back to the workplace, um, I think we'll all do things differently with the, uh, the amount of learning we've done with remote work. You know, I, I think we at Jacobs has experienced, and if you asked us if uh, in a two-week period we would have 85, be able to have 85% or 80% of our, our workforce working remotely, I, I think we would have said not possible before this. But we, we've done it, and we've done some remarkable things. But, but the question is, when we return to the workplace, how many, what percentage of our workforce will return to a daily commute, which will also have a, a, an opposite effect on the highway bridge system. We could see changes in supply and demand that'll affect our ports business and diversification from uh, a few number of very large port facilities where most of our goods pass through to diversification to smaller ports, minimizing the reliance on uh, some major port facilities and some bottlenecks that can occur. The future of, of public transportation and transit is, is, like I said, large, like we said, largely dependent on confidence around safety, commuting requirements, and you know, economic uh, indicators as we move forward. And, and Andrew's talked about a number of the challenges in, in aviation, and they're similar for public transportation. So while we don't know exactly what it's gonna look like, I think there's a few things that, that we do know our clients are gonna be focused on, and Andrew talked about a number of them in aviation. But in, in addition, I think we'll see a much more, a much stronger reliance on looking at resiliency and considering resiliency in the operations of our transport systems globally. To date, most of the resiliency discussions in the transportation market have been around climate change and climate events. Well, this sort of changes the way we'll look at resiliency. And I think as, as part of that, we'll see an increased use of, of, of autom automation and, and systems to minimize contacts and personal contacts to, to protect both workers and traveling public alike. And I think all of that could lead to more closely connected, you know, and coordinated, I'll say seamless transportation systems where we're focusing less on modes of transportation. So aviation versus transit um, versus cycling 
and see a more seamless connection and consideration of mobility. If you think about an example, for example, if you're leaving your house at, at seven o'clock in the morning and you need to get to work by 7.30, today you sort of look at it mode by mode. If you're gonna walk from your front door to a bus station, um, you, you decide how long it's gonna take you. You look at a bus schedule to determine when the bus might show up or which buses you may get. Then you look at another app or a map to understand uh, the transit system, right? And so all of those things are done individually, but I think what we'll see coming out of this is more seamless connection between those things. And, and so the app that you may look at would say, I need to get from my, my home to my workplace from seven to 7.30 and give you options between walking, riding a bus, taking a train, taking a taxi or an Uber or Lyft, uh, on the other end. But if we look at all those things together seamlessly, it's more focused on the customer. And it does two things. It, it provides good, reliable information to the traveling public that can be used across modes, but it also provides demand information for our public transportation systems. And with that demand information, uh, the operators are able to, to change real time or adjust real time and, and deal with some of the variables we talked about that are uncertain. So for example, we may see things like scheduled bus ride times or scheduled subway rides and be able to use this sort of seamless connection between modes of transportation as a means to continue to social distance as we need to until we come up with therapeutics and the vaccines and so on and so forth. So it's focusing more on mobility uh, across modes and, and that seamless connection benefits both the traveling public and it also allows operators to have better information on demand and to be able to adjust their systems accordingly almost in real time to meet demand or to meet changing variables like capacity as capacity on buses increase a 40 passenger bus could have could have carried 40 people three months ago today it can carry 15 to 20 well that will go back up as as we come up with therapeutics and vaccines and other solutions that will help us manage uh, the health crisis that we're in and, and with that seamless sort of connection between modes, operators will be able to manage more in real time and adjust their systems together as opposed to through individual modes. So I think those are some things that we'll see. And, and then one thing I know from, from our standpoint, and Andrew alluded to this as well, is the, the connection that we've seen between our professional healthcare staff, folks who are traditionally working primarily in the healthcare field with hospitals and doctors, their clinicians, doctors and nurses who are on our staff are working closely with folks like Andrew and his counterparts in the other modes of transportation to understand that connection between healthcare and what we need to be baking into future designs or what we need to re rehab or redesign in our transportation systems to accommodate some new criteria around healthcare requirements. So I think those are some things we'll see moving forward. Um, the pace, uh, and the return of demand, I think, will be largely linked to the economy. I'm an optimist, and I believe we'll find the solutions from a health standpoint. But I think uh, just as big a concern is the economic return and how quickly uh, our global economy gets, gets back on track and restarted. With that, thank you, Kevin and Andrew, for your time and insights today. It's a very interesting world we find ourselves in. And so much reliance on uh, modes of transportation. So it'll be interesting to see how we move about the globe going forward. So again, thank you so much for your time today.